Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Okay, I gotta ask you about the t-shirt. I I saw a tweet of you with a photo wearing a t-shirt. that All I could see across the top was stubborn, which I thought was right for you. (laughs) But it said something else. What was that? Um, That's my stubborn climate optimist shirt. You know... Working on climate change is really hard, right? It can be really devastating. There's so much inequality. There's so much suffering. And um, we come to these spaces and they can often really let us down. But we have to make progress wherever we can. And so I I try and wear that shirt just to bolster my sense of like, I'm going to do what I can in this space and then I'm going to go home and do more. Well, Catherine Abreu has been working around the clock over the past couple of weeks, and I spoke to her just hours after COP28 negotiations had wrapped up. Catherine, how much sleep have you had in the last few days? Ooh, not much. <laughs> yeah, definitely not enough. I slept very little last night because I I thought that something was going to happen in the middle of the night, and I was staying at the venue and just, yeah decided to come home very late and had to wake up very early. So I'm tired. <laughs> Maybe you can tell our listeners who you are and, and why you're so sleep deprived. I, I'm Catherine Abreu. I'm founder and executive director of Destination Zero, which is a nonprofit organization. And I'm sleep deprived because I am um, just finishing up COP28 in Dubai. So I've been working very long hours over the last couple of weeks. And I'm Laura Lynch, and I'm not at COP in Dubai, (laughs) but you are listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Can you tell me what is your reaction to what has been agreed and what hasn't? So at COP28, the world agreed that the end of the fossil fuel era has arrived. Finally, after 30 years of the UN climate talks failing to name the cause of the climate crisis, which is fossil fuels, it is a very significant outcome in terms of this energy transition package. There's also commitments in there to triple renewable energy capacity and double energy efficiency improvements. Um, It's not perfect. You know, we never get everything that we want in these kinds of spaces. Uh, So there are some things that are really missing from the text, but um, I think this is a pretty, you know, big moment where we're really sounding the death knell for the fossil fuel era. So much focus had been on getting that phrase phasing out or phasing down fossil fuels into the final agreement, and it didn't happen. What do you think of that? Yeah, it was pretty remarkable. So, you know, heading into this COP, over 100 countries were calling for the final decision here in Dubai to contain uh, the words phase out fossil fuels. Um, We didn't get those words, but we did get, I think, still a really strong signal and, and it was much stronger language than some of the draft texts that we saw over the course of the last couple of weeks. I was worried for a while that we wouldn't actually see anything on fossil fuels in the text. So I think this language transitioning away from it's not, you know, it's not as final as phase out, but I think still gives us that way forward in, in a really strong way. So what, what was Canada's position in relation to the wording on phasing out of fossil fuels? 
So Canada was one of those countries that came into COP28 with the expectation that we would have language around phasing out fossil fuels in the final outcomes. Now, of course, Canada was always putting that word unabated into the mix, so calling for a phase out of unabated fossil fuels. But that word abatement is basically allowing for technologies like carbon capture and storage to play a role in the transition away from fossil fuels, which, you know, a lot of us are suspicious of because the science tells us that these abatement technologies have a very, very limited role to play if we're going to actually be delivering on the the climate promises that we've made under the Paris Agreement. And I think for good reason, many of us worry that those abatement technologies are actually just a backdoor to continuing the production and consumption of fossil fuels business as usual. I, I'm, I'm a little confused. I'm still trying to understand what Canada's position was. Obviously, it approved of the, the final agreement. Yeah. Earlier in the year, during the G7, Canada signed on to a statement with the six other countries in the G7 that they would call for the phase out of unabated fossil fuels. In the final decision of COP28, we didn't see that language attached to the transition away from fossil fuels, although we did see some kind of worrying paragraphs that make room for the use of that kind of technology. Okay, I want to dig some more into some of what have been seen as as weaknesses or flaws in the agreement, and I want to start with small island states. Um, they're complaining that the, the deal was approved, the gavel was brought down when they weren't even in the room. I just want you to listen to hear what Anne Rasmussen, who is a lead negotiator for Small Island States, she's from Samoa, what she mm-hmm. said in the plenary after the deal was done. We have come to the conclusion that the course correction that is needed has not been secured. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. Mr. President, in paragraph 26, we do not see any commitment or even an invitation from parties to peak emissions by 2025. She also talked about loopholes that they see in the agreement as well. And at one point, developed countries were saying that the prior drafts were the death warrants for small island states. So what do you think of her reaction and how this deal was done? Yeah, it was it was really devastating that uh, the AOSIS, the Alliance of, of Small Island States, um, that have really been the coalition of countries pushing ambition into these climate talks for years. They were largely responsible, for instance, for getting the Paris Agreement to name the the temperature threshold of 1.5 degrees. It was just heartbreaking that they weren't in the room and able to express their objections before this decision was gaveled through. So while I'm saying we've made this kind of extraordinary step in the context of this process, it's not good enough. It does contain these loopholes, worrying language around abatement technologies, worrying language around uh, transitional fuels that I think many of us worry as code for things like liquefied natural gas. And we also don't see enough clarity in this text, and I think this was a big part of what small island developing states and other developing countries would have wanted to see more of around who pays for this energy transition, who helps developing countries, you know, 
make sure that they can take advantage of this renewable energy revolution and that they don't have to develop their fossil fuels in order to, you know, gain economic wealth. So then is the deal legitimate, given that they weren't even able to voice an opinion? I mean, they may have scuttled it since it has to be by consensus. So we've seen this kind of action before in order to kind of get a decision through. And I do think, you know, the AOSIS, this group of 39 countries that belongs to this negotiating bloc, they issued a statement in their reaction to the this draft text. And in that statement, they didn't say that they were going to reject it. So I, I think that they really just wanted to be able to note that there was far more ambition that could have been built into this decision and that we still have a long way to go to actually deliver on this promise of 1.5, which is critical to them because many of these small island states, they're really not going to be able to survive warming above 1.5 degrees Celsius. All right. I, I want to uh, go a little deeper into something you are you just mentioned as well, which is what is in the agreement on so-called transitional fuels. Um, it, it says that these fuels can play a role in the transition to clean energy and ensuring energy security. Now, as you said, people widely see that phrase, transitional fuels, as being natural gas, something that uh, countries like Russia and Iran had called for. Um, doesn't that weaken the strength of the agreement to move away from fossil fuels? So it's it's absolutely the case, you know, that there are loopholes in this language that fossil fuel producers are going to look to exploit. You know, every country has their kind of favorite transitional fuel, quote unquote, that they will read into this text. So as you mentioned, Russia, Iran, they're going to read gas into it. The United States, Canada, perhaps, are going to read LNG into it. Um, Japan might read ammonia, other countries in Southeast Asia might read biofuels. So there's this kind of element of what in in this wonky space of the COP is called constructive ambiguity in this text. (laughs) Um, And I think that that was probably a part of being able to land this deal. This did have to be a bit of a compromise text, and I read that as as a compromise. But if we look at the headlines coming out of this COP, And the signal that's being sent by this decision to policymakers, to the investment market, all the headlines are reading, fossil fuels are on their way out. And I think that is the power of this process is to send that signal. And then it's up to us back at home to defend against these, you know, dangerous loopholes and make sure that they're not exploited. Well, let's hear a little bit of uh, tape now of the president of COP28, Sultan, uh, Sultan Ahmed al-Jabber, uh, who we know had been widely criticized for his, some of his remarks. Here he is uh, speaking at a news conference after agreement was finally reached. We have given it a robust action plan to keep 1.5 within reach. It is a plan that is led by the science. It is a balanced plan that tackles emissions, bridges the gap on adaptation, reimagines global finance, and delivers on loss and damage. It is built on common ground. It is strengthened by full inclusivity, and it is reinforced by collaboration. 
It is an enhanced, balanced, but make no mistake, historic package to accelerate climate action. It is the UAE consensus. Catherine, uh, what is your assessment of Al Jaber's leadership over the past two weeks or so? You know, I would say it was pretty mixed. Um, it is the case that at COP28, we have had two significant decisions made. Number one, on the first day of this set of UN climate talks, something called the Loss and Damage Fund was adopted. Um, this is a fund that developing countries in particular have been pushing for four decades, uh, where they're asking for support in order to address the losses and damages that they're already experiencing from the devastating impacts of climate change. So, and you know, now here on the last day of COP, it's the first ever UN decision on climate change to actually name fossil fuels. So these are both significant developments, but I'm more inclined to, to give the wins for these turn, this major turn of events to the communities the frontline communities, the vulnerable countries that have been fighting for these things in these talks for years, for decades really, and also to the civil society that has been pushing for this and creating the political space for this to happen over the last number of years. I think it's important for, for people to understand that even though this is an agreement, um, a consensus, a deal between the nations, it's not binding at all. So in the end, what significance is there really to this agreement? Mm. I think we need to just be conscientious of what it is this process does and, and what it doesn't do. And it's true that while it is a legal agreement under the international convention, it doesn't have any enforcement mechanism. So, but the Paris Agreement which again was signed back in 2015, has created this kind of interesting dynamic where a part of the um, informal enforcement process is this kind of peer pressure. So, you know, every year all the countries in the world come together and they have to basically expose to each other what they've been doing on climate change. Having this decision in a COP text doesn't mean, okay, every capital is now going to immediately cease producing fossil fuels and phase them out of the course of the next year. No, it doesn't mean that. But it does, I guess, make sure that the next round of climate pledges will have to consider um, this commitment that's been made to scale up renewable energy and energy efficiency and transition away from fossil fuels. I think we often underestimate the strength of the signal that this process actually sends into financial markets. Um, we saw even in the signing of the Paris Agreement that there was a strong shift that it uh, that it made in those financial markets. And I think the decision today has sent a really strong signal to investors that it's time to be moving your money out of the fossil fuel problem and into the renewable energy solution. So, Catherine Abrea, how many cops have you been to? This was my eighth. Are you done? Do you Have you accomplished <laughs> what you wanted to accomplish? I set out a number of years ago to really commit myself to getting our climate negotiations to name the cause of the climate crisis. 
And it's been actually incredible to see how far we've come over the course of the last six years that I've been working with so many others to make this change happen. So I said to myself, if I am able to work with my community to land that this year, I'm going to give myself next year off. (laughs) Um, So I think I'll take one year off of COP and then maybe I'll be back for COP30 in Brazil. (laughs) I think think a break is well deserved. Um, Catherine Abreu, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for following from afar. So, the next set of COP negotiations being held in Azerbaijan will be without Catherine's presence, but I'm sure there will be many other people stepping up to keep going with the work. And we'll be right back. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Here we try again. Hello, hello. Oh, that's it. We hit a sweet spot. Okay, we're back to the original setup. (laughs) (laughs) You know what the problem was? It was the fan. Well, after some technical difficulties, we managed to get one of our columnists, Chuck Odenivo, on the line. He's just returned from a public health conference in Quebec. Chuck, how was the conference? The conference was magnifique. So to preface, the conference is called Journée Annuelle de Santé Publique. Um, it's a yearly conference that takes place in Quebec that brings together all the sort of public health practitioners across the province um, to chat about the latest research, um, share best practices, and find really great ways to move forward. This was the first time the conference has made space for eco-anxiety as a topic. And is that why you were there? Yes. As part of this conference, they put together a panel um, that was comprised of myself, and two other researchers uh, whose work centers around climate change and the health, the mental health impacts of climate change on specific populations. And how did it go? It went really well. I think I will say on a personal front, it was the first time in a very long time that I, that I had been in a room with only white participants. And so that was a little bit surprising. So as you said, you're the only person of color in the room. But I also understand that one of the panelists said something that gave you some pause, too. What did that person say? Yeah, so this panelist um, does research with young people to essentially kind of understand how young people experience um, eco-anxiety and uh, mental health in relation to the climate crisis. And one of the things that she said was that according to her research, according to the interviews that she's held, the focus groups that she's done, the data that she's been able to collect, she said that eco-anxiety in young people manifests in a way where they are the first generation in their families, where they feel like their futures are not going to be brighter than their parents' future as a result of climate change. And why did that stand out to you? It stood out to me because on the one hand, it is true, but it's very specifically true 
for one demographic, right? It's very specifically true for white kids, uh, for kids of color, but not just kids of color, for kids who are marginalized in um, any sort of way, right? So whether they are marginalized as queer, marginalized um, in other ways, we recognize that we are living better features than our parents are living better features than the people who came before us could ever hope to live. While racism still very much exists, the way racism takes form and takes shape, we're not facing the same barriers to employment. The glass ceiling has changed, right? And so the struggles that we are facing are not the same struggles our parents faced. And we're living essentially better features than they than they hope to live. And so I think what really hit me is that in work around eco-anxiety, we don't often recognize that the ways in which we're going to experience certain problems will differ based off of um, the ways in which we experience society. Well, that's exactly what we're going to get into today with you, Chuck. So welcome back to the show. Thank you. All right, let, let's start with this question. Do you get eco-anxiety? Yes, I do. And I think it took me a while for me to realize that I also experience eco-anxiety. And so when I talk about topics like environmental racism, when I talk about topics like climate change, I often have a habit of saying that this is not the first apocalypse, right? There's uh, many populations that have already gone through apocalypses, right? If we think about indigenous people and how they went through an apocalypse by having an alien invader come and change their way of life forever and what happened to black peoples across the world through the transatlantic slave trade. If we think about what happened to queer folk throughout history being constantly sort of um, targeted and exterminated. And so for a very privileged segment of the population, climate change is the first apocalypse that they imagine humanity going through. It's the first apocalypse that they see where they're scared of that future. When I think about eco-anxiety and how I experience eco-anxiety, I think about my fears for the future and my fears that are active in the present, where I recognize that things aren't perfect. I think there's grave issues that we are facing on a climate front and an environmental front. And sometimes I feel this uh, sense of guilt that uh, that should I not be grateful, should I not be just happy and content that I've been able to sort of um, move further than the generation before me. Yeah, and you're not allowed to complain because you've got it better than your parents, right? Exactly. And then the other piece around the ways in which I experience eco-anxiety is I have this fear that I won't realize what my own needs are until it's too late. Whether through your climate work, your academic work, your social circles, what's your sense of how other racialized folks might experience eco-anxiety differently from their white counterparts? I'm going to expand this from just racialized folk to saying marginalized peoples in general. Okay. You know, I'm just going to name a couple of examples that I've witnessed or had conversations about just this summer alone. So for Francophones, specifically outside of Quebec, eco-anxiety often manifests as a fear of assimilation because as climate change negatively impacts the economy, Francophones are forced into English-dominant spaces and will often lose their language. For queer folk, eco-anxiety manifests as fear for their bodily well-being and their rights. Right? So in the event of a climate disaster where they're forced to flee, 
um, the kind of discrimination that they'll face in the new communities that they flee into. For example, like with the forest fires this past summer, you know, queer people who left the Northwest Territories in the safety of Yellowknife and experienced um, quite a bit of homophobia and transphobia um, as they, you know, waited out the fires in Alberta. For Black folk, eco-anxiety can manifest as a fear for their lives, right? Climate issues, we often seek out military aid. And as we know, sort of Black folk are disproportionately targeted by and focused on by law enforcement in Canada. We see this greater fear that, oh no, um, there's an increase in policing and therefore I am no longer safe when I'm out and about. That's Sarah Jaquette Ray, who write, teaches about social justice and climate emotions at Humboldt State University in California, wrote an article in 2021, and that was a year after the murder of George Floyd. I just want to read two quotes from that. She wrote, quote, people who had been insulated from oppression are now waking up to the prospect of their own unlivable future. And she also said, quote, the prospect of an unlivable future has always shaped the emotional terrain for black and brown people. What do you think of her observations? I think that is really well said. And I love those two quotes that you chose because they they align very well with experiences that Black and Indigenous folk have been talking about over the last couple of years, especially during the COVID-19 crisis, where we saw a disproportionate impact on Black and Indigenous peoples in Canada. And she also wonders, though, if climate anxiety is a form of white fragility. What do you make of that? I think the ways in which we understand eco-anxiety have mainly been defined by white people through white experiences, kind of like, uh, as I said earlier, with um, the lady who did research amongst young people. She had clearly only really done research with white young people to be able to sort of come to the conclusion that she came to. And so when we look at eco-anxiety from that perspective, then there is a white fragility piece because the fear is ending our current way of life, right? The world changing as we know it and not being able to get back to quote-unquote normal. Populations of color also need to be able to recognize eco-anxiety in their communities in order to be able to begin that process of healing and that process of world-building to create and design futures that allow them to be more resilient to climate change. Okay, and you already touched on this, but I just want to try to ask this a different way. Many racialized people believe they have a brighter future here in Canada than their parents generation, how might that prospect collide with any feelings they may have about climate change? It's funny because it's almost like they they gaslight themselves into believing that their feelings are not valid, right? I mean, you know, when we talk about eco-anxiety and a fear for the future manifesting in, you know, a fear that the first house you buy might be burnt down by a forest fire, it's like, well, at least I can buy a house. My parents couldn't buy a house. You know, if you're worried about the industry that you're in no longer existing, well, at least you're able to like have a job and climb the ladder to the level you're able to get to because your parents weren't even able to get their foot in the door. Right? There's all of these sort of back and forth that you almost have with yourself uh, where you deny the validity of your own concerns and you deny the validity of your own feelings because they do not seem on paper as extreme as what your parents' generation went through what the previous generation went through. So it's it's that balance of being able to name and appreciate the privileges we have while still being able to acknowledge and recognize the barriers and the difficulties and the world endings that we still have to face. It sounds so tricky to navigate. Uh, And and my next question is is even trickier, I think. Mm -hmm. What if someone has an aspiration to to, uh, a work or a life that actually contributes to climate change? How might they have anxiety about that? To use Slave Lake as an example, Slave Lake had that massive fire where 
almost where the entire town had been evacuated. And I think like what, up to 60% of buildings had been burnt down. I was informed that there was a lot of anger and a lot of resentment that had nowhere to go. Because since people were not willing to name climate change as a problem, they couldn't direct their anger or their frustration towards the sources and the causes of climate change. And so this anger just sort of ended up making small, you know, neighborly issues become big, you know, fights and brawls. And it got to the point where the municipality had to find a way to collectively address the anger of the citizens. If we're unable to name climate change, and if we feel like we are building a life that actively contributes to climate change, um, it creates a lot of emotions, a lot of complicated emotions, right? There's the emotion of, well, I do I have any other choice? I have to participate in the system that I'm in. But at the same time, you know, um, I need to find a way to transition out of this industry, but also this industry is going to give me a good life, but also I worked hard to be here, right? There's a lot of complicated emotions. And I think the key component about this is to be able to name those, uh, name and recognize those emotions so they don't build up into sort of a generalized anger that has nowhere to be placed. So we began this conversation chatting about a conference that, that you went to where you talked about climate anxiety and ways to help people cope. What does culturally specific support for young racialized people look like? Mm. When we think about, you know, what racialized folk need to cope with these feelings and to cope with anxiety, I think the first piece is there's a need for community-wide healing practices and efforts. So there's a need for society-wide affirmation that, you know, climate change is going on so that people can then better acknowledge that while they are grateful for what they have, their concerns are valid and they're real. They're being affirmed by society at large. And then we need to build joy into how we get things done, right? Every time we talk about climate change, it's always such a serious and somber discussion. And while it is a very serious topic, the fact of the matter is we can't always be serious. We need joy in the work that we do. So we need to build joy into activism. We need to build joy into work. We need to build joy into business. And we need to build joy into how we come together as a society. That sounds like an excellent way to end this conversation. And because it is of the season, I'm happy to wish you the joy of the season, Chuck. <laughs> we have to find it where we can, right? <laughs> Oh, it's great to hear you laugh. Choco Denivo, thank you so much. Thank you. It has been my pleasure. The man with the greatest laugh in the world. <laughs> Remember, you can listen to all our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We drop two new podcasts every week. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We want to know what you think. Even better than that, tell a friend about us and get them to have a listen. That is all for now. The show was put together by Danielle Piper, Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Matthias Wolfson, and Molly Siegel. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.